Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Dentalpreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Costas. All right, guys, I'm excited for this one today. When I woke up this morning and I looked at my schedule, I was super excited that I get to chat with this gentleman today. I want to introduce you guys to Perrin Desports. He's the co-founder and partner of Polaris Healthcare Partners. He received a BA from Washington and Lee University and an MBA from Darla Moore School of Business at the University of South Carolina. He's a fourth generation of family-held dental distribution business, Thomas Dental Company, a 15-year career as a general manager at Patterson Dental Supply. Uh, he's a co-founder and partner at Tusk Partners. He's a husband and seven-time father of the year to his daughter. He's an avid cyclist, tennis player, and voracious reader, and he is guilty of being both a foodie and a total coffee snob. Welcome to the podcast, Perrin. How are you doing today, my friend? Thanks, Mark. It's great to be on with you this afternoon. I really appreciate it. I, every time I hear an introduction like that, I'm sort of scratching my head, like, who is he actually talking about? You know? so. <laughs> well, I mean, the fact that you're a foodie makes us, we have a lot in common as far as that goes. I love my food, but you do not look like the type of person that indulges very often. So you look very fit. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I get up uh, at O-Dark 30 every morning and ride my bike 20 to 30 miles and longer wow. on the weekends. And that that kind of helps with the consumption side of the ledger, if you know what I mean. So. I totally know what you mean. You know, every time I'm tempted to push the snooze button, I'm like, well, you know what? It is Thursday and Friday. I'm going to probably, you know, have indulged myself with a little bit of red <laughs> wine and uh, and a very rich meal. So I got to keep it going. So I totally understand. Um because the name of your company is not self-explanatory, I would love to hear specifically what it is you guys do over there at Polaris and uh, a little bit of the history of the company and maybe a little bit about your history in dentistry. Yeah, I'll try to, I'll try to be brief with it so I don't bore any of your audience here. But, um, you know, like you said, I, I was fourth generation in a family-held dental distribution business called Thompson Dental Company. And my dad was uh, president and CEO, and my grandfather was chairman of the board at the point that we sold Thompson to Patterson Dental Supply, and that was April of 2002. And I like to say we didn't sell the business for financial reasons or operational reasons. Thompson Dental was growing very quickly at the time um, on the run rate of about $100 million in revenue. We wow. sold it for poor equity transition planning. And um, my dad has uh, two sisters neither of whom worked in the business, nor did uh, their husbands or any of their, their children. Um, and upon my grandfather's ultimate demise, his estate was set up to be share and share alike. And you can kind of do some quick napkin math to say, okay, two thirds can outvote one third if somebody wants their money, and that might be a really bad thing. So mm -hmm. Patterson was a, a great um, opportunity for us to transition the business, and one that afforded me a uh, a tremendous career, I'd like to think, over 15 years. I learned a heck of a lot about business, P&L management, uh, and they were really good to me over that period of time. I learned a lot about equity, um, being a part of a family-held business, and, and also through the Patterson days, and I'll reference that in just a second. So fast forward um, to you know, probably the late, um, around the, the housing collapse, 2008, 2010, all of a sudden, there's this proliferation of um, group dental practices. We always had Heartland Dental, Aspen Dental, Pacific Dental, everybody at the top of the food chain that was private equity back. And then the vast majority of the industry was still solo private practice. Well, after the, the economic collapse, you started seeing these um, doctor-led groups 
coming out of the woodwork, right? I mean, it was the fastest growing segment of the space. And these were entrepreneurs who happened to be dentists that wanted to own more than one location. And as you well know, there's a tremendous amount of consulting resources to your traditional solo private practice. Mm-hmm. Well, back in the early 20 teens, there really wasn't anyone helping uh, an entrepreneur scale a group dental practice. Right. It's not really about clinical perspective. It's more about business management, leadership, and how you use bank funds to grow, how you buy or build practices, how you attract uh, associates into the business, mm-hmm. you know, how you work on the business, not necessarily in the business. And there wasn't really anybody uh, from a consulting perspective providing that resource. And then you found that, lo and behold, if one of these group practices made it to some level of, uh, call it success, there wasn't anybody that was there to help them transact the business. Because a traditional dental practice broker is really good at a doctor-to-doctor trade, right? But that broker doesn't necessarily have the, the schooling, the smarts, and the experience, candidly, to negotiate a transaction that deals with putting call rights on equity and valuation as a multiple of EBITDA and uh, hold back and earn out and you know, tax ramifications, all this kind of stuff that makes the transaction much more complicated when the business is that level of scale and when it's being bought usually by a private equity backed entity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I saw this at the, the Patterson level because a lot of these people were our best customers, right? They were, they were growing into group practices. They were making the same mistakes time and time again, stubbing their toes everywhere. And, and there was no resource for them. And my co-founding partner, DeWalker Sinha, is a career, I like to call him a recovering healthcare banker. And he <laughs> led the uh, East West Bank um, group healthcare practice um, uh, vertical and appropriately enough saw the emergence of those doctor founded and debt funded groups, the doctor founded groups that were using bank funds to grow. And that's what East West focused on. So DeWalker saw the same thing that I saw from a completely different lens. And, and that was from the banking lens because they were all using bank funds to grow. This is pre-private equity at that kind of two to 10 stage, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so when you sit around a campfire with somebody and you say, you know, somebody ought to start a business that would help these people, you know, grow and scale and ultimately exit their business. If you repeat that refrain often enough, it's, it's kind of like Beavis and Butthead, you know, the light bulb flickers <laughs> for a second and then it, then it goes on and you look at one another and say, well, if nobody else is going to start that business, why don't we do that? We know how to run larger businesses. We know how to grow and scale enterprise operations. We, you know, we don't know anything about clinical dentistry, but clinical dentistry isn't what these entrepreneurs need. They need business resources, consulting resources that teach them how to grow and scale the business and run a, a better operation that achieves more profitability, more valuation, and more opportunity for further growth down the road. Um, and you know, we uh, the original business that we launched about five years ago, we left um, a little bit over a year to go to launch um, Polaris. And our vision for Polaris is to do exactly what I just said, help entrepreneurial dentists build and exit successful group practices. And we do that through a variety of um, you know, consulting approaches that are growth and scale oriented. 
We do debt recapitalization services, which again, all of our clients are using bank funds to grow. So if you don't get the banking piece right, it doesn't matter what your growth strategy is if the bank cuts you off, you got nothing at that point. So understanding how to use debt funds, the right lender to work with, and the lender that'll give a client um, a credit facility to, to go out and continue growing the business. It's almost like a conditional pre-approval to acquire more practices mm-hmm. for, for growth capital. We do associate equity models that are um, earn-in, basically, where a, a young associate that may be carrying a tremendous amount of student loan debt and personal debt doesn't want to take on another million dollars from Bank of America or Wells Fargo to buy his or her first practice. So an earn-in model is a a way for them to earn equity in these group practices. Um, And then ultimately, you know, again, at some level of success, help the the founder or owners transact the business or find a capital partner for growth at that stage. We're solidly focused, solely focused on group dental practices right here, right now, today. Um, our vision for Polaris and the reason we call it Polaris Healthcare Partners and not Polaris Dental Partners is because we think that the dynamics around dentistry um, are really compelling, but they're not unique. Uh, my wife is an ophthalmologist and ophthalmology optometry, it's a different aspect of healthcare. The metrics are slightly different. The principles are all the same. You see it in vet see it in dermatology, podiatry, and another, a lot of other healthcare verticals. So we think if we can build a, a business that is um, uh, repeatable and scalable on our end, just like our clients, we can apply it to other healthcare verticals down the road. And that's the, the more uh, intermediate term vision for the business. Got it. So proof of concept within dentistry, which is a big, uh, a big chunk of the healthcare opportunities out there. Um, I'm glad you brought up, uh, you know, other verticals and specifically that your wife is an ophthalmologist. She's an MD, um, because to me, um, it seems like with the exception of a few subspecialties in medicine, the consolidation has already happened. And the vast majority of physicians now, it appears, are members of large groups, um, have been purchased and consolidated by um private equity, venture, or um, hospitals, which are backed by private equity or venture. So uh, tell us about what you have seen in medicine um, with this huge consolidation and any potential risks to dentistry for that to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you're right. Uh, everybody says, gosh, I wish I had a crystal ball and, and I'm not the sharpest bulb in the drawer, as I like to say, but I I do think that if you look at other areas of medicine, you can kind of see how dentistry evolves, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not rocket science by any stretch. Um, My, uh, my wife's brother, my brother-in-law is a, is a heart surgeon and he is part of a um, a hospital network in uh, Columbia, South Carolina. And, and all of them are right. I mean, none of those guys, none of those professionals are are independent anymore. And I think Mm -hmm. there are some, still um, uh, areas of of those other healthcare verticals, like I mentioned, that are still physician practice model oriented. My wife's group is an I and ENT group, uh, which is a little bit of a unique bird. They have 75 to 80 um, partners in that business, 28 locations or something like that. And they are not private equity back. They are physician owned. Um, So they are um, a bit of a unicorn, if you will. 
I think the aspect of government payer and compliance um, all but forces other areas of medicine to take on more uh, burdensome back-end uh, administrative services that dentistry is uh, starting to scratch the surface more on that right now, but I think it's uh, more uh, prevalent. I'm trying to be diplomatic about this since we're on a podcast and everything, but, um, okay. you know, you know um, understood, so, understood. yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, but I, I think that, uh, you know, now we're talking about um, Medicare coverage that'll probably hit dentistry by the end of the decade was the last that I heard, mm -hmm. I think from the ADA. So, I mean, there's, there's more government um, involvement with dental services that, that's going to be coming down the pike for sure. And, and I think that's going to continue to um, pressure our industry uh, in, in more ways. You know, and I think the other thing too, if it's not government related, um, it's really challenging to run a small business of any sort in today's world and a solo private practice, dentistry practice, is no different. I mean, the, the ADA has done a lot of studies on their declining payer um, reimbursement index, I think is what they call it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, wage pressures, right? I mean, we have uh, PPE, we have uh, uh, increasing cost of employment and maintaining our, our staff, um, uh, you know, the cost of technology, et cetera, et cetera. You've got a rising cost environment and, a, and most solo practices take some level of insurance reimbursement, declining payer, that hits the owner directly in the back pocket. And, and that's a, a really challenging uh, environment to operate a, a, a solo practice in now. So I think some people are, are looking for maybe a safe harbor in a, in a lot of ways, a bigger boat to be part of. And um, most of them are starting to look to um, you know, private equity backed enterprise level groups but I think still arguably the, the most dynamic aspect of our world is these uh, doctor-led groups, call them emerging groups, call them doctor-founded groups, debt-funded, mm -hmm. what, however you want to put a bow around them, but they're all two to 25 locations maybe or something like that. And they're, they're the people who um, have multiple partners in the practice. The revenue stream is not dependent upon one person generating the uh, the bulk of the economic development out of the business. And, and these are, are businesses that have a very, very rosy future ahead of them because they can afford to be open longer days and hours. Um, mm -hmm. They can do more complicated procedures. They have money to reinvest in marketing. It's a really, really compelling uh, space to be in. So that's not mm -hmm. unique to dentistry, but long-winded answer. But, you know, that a lot of that is is similar context and vet and podiatry and, and ophthalmology optometry, like I mentioned before. Yeah. Yeah. Much bigger market though. I mean, if you're looking at podiatry, 25,000, maybe, um, yeah. ophthalmology, pretty small, you probably have dermatology that, that could potentially be an asset to sell. Um, I will say, you know, just this anecdote that I use often is the, the, one of the saddest days that I've seen for, a, a you know, personal friends of ours is it was a couple that was, you know, a general physician and a pedi pediatrician. They shared beautiful office space. You know, you go down the right, right-hand side and it's all the kids. You go down the left-hand side, it's all the adults and a beautiful, thriving practice. 
um, they decided that it was time to hang it up after 30 years in private practice. And when I say hang it up, they literally hung it up and closed doors and all of the patients. Oh, got, no. Yeah, they got referred to different parts of different providers in the town because they didn't have a sellable asset. Because if you want to be a general physician anywhere, you hang up a shingle, you don't have to buy anything from anybody. You will be filled in two weeks. Same thing for a pediatrician. So um, I do, when I think about that side of medicine, I feel very, very fortunate that, you know, dentistry isn't that way necessarily, even for a general practitioner, and that we do have a sellable asset, um, either one or 50 practices at the end of our career. Um, so I still believe that we are in a really great, great spot as far, you know, as a career choice. Yeah, I, I look, I completely agree with you and, and everybody who wants to, you know, uh, think negatively about um the the coming years of of the profession i'm decidedly against that i mean mm -hmm. i i think that uh, there are some great we got a, a a great decade or more ahead of us in terms of overall patient volume growth i mean heck again the ada talks about you know less than 50 percent of the adult population sees a dentist on an annual basis yeah. you know i mean there's just people you know if somebody needs dental work done, it doesn't fix itself and it doesn't get cheaper the longer you wait, you know? And, and I just, people are living longer. They like having healthy dentition and, and a healthy mouth. And I mean, now, again, I, I don't like attributing this to insurance companies because we've been talking about it for the better part of two decades, but that systemic link between oral health and heart health if it takes the insurance companies to finally figure it out to say, wait a minute, if, if we actually encourage people to take better care of their mouths, we have fewer problems downstream for our subscriber base. If that's what it takes to get it done, uh, okay, it can be a catalyst for it. But I, I really feel like the, the coming years of, of dentistry are going to be unbelievably good. Yeah, yeah. Well, if they can redeem themselves, that would be just about the only thing they could do to redeem themselves in my eyes is, is to uh, <laughs> to highlight the, the fact that there is a link between, you know, the oral cavity and the rest of the body. For goodness sake, it is combined. It is, I mean, it is connected and there is definitive proof um, that, you know, it's directly um, correlated, not causation, correlation with, with yep. you know, cardiovascular disease and, and untreated uh periodontal disease, et cetera. But anyway, um, I digress. Uh, I would, I would love to talk about, you know, when I was building my group, I've had 16 dental practices. And at one point I had 10 trying to go to 15. Um, and even before that, I would say five trying to get to eight. I hit the brick wall that so many people talk about with the traditional lenders, right? So, um, at the time it was Zion's bank. And then I did a little stuff with B of A, a little stuff with Wells Fargo. And at some point, even though, you know, the P&Ls were looking really, really good, um, they reached their ceiling um, with their underwriting department and they were unwilling to lend me any more money, which to me is extremely frustrating because I have people that um, I know very, very closely that um, are in the real estate world. And these are people that don't even have a traditional job. They're just real estate investors. And they're able to borrow, you know, $75 million for, you know, four apartment complexes. And here I am with, you know, a, an, an operation that's doing 15 million with a really solid EBITDA and nobody will lend me money to continue to grow. It's like, what is going on? I don't understand 
what's the matter with with the banks when it comes to this, especially when the the default rate is so low for dentist uh, borrowers. So is there still, uh, it's been, you know, seven, eight years since I've been in the game, uh, the multiple practice game, is there still this gap between a certain period when the regular banks are willing to lend up to the ceiling and then um, when the more sophisticated banks are willing to take on a DSO client before there was a gap, is there still? Yeah, so um, I'm going to try to be coherent and as concise as I can be, because this is a really complicated question. And uh, um, there's a part of me that wishes DeWalker were on with us right now. There's another part of me that's glad that he's not, because this could be like a three-hour podcast episode, <laughs> all right? So, yeah, he's he's so, a smart guy. He's a very yeah, smart he guy. Yeah, he is. He is. Well, you can have him back to talk banking uh, more thoroughly. But So here, here's yeah. kind of some of it in a nutshell, Okay. Um, you're right. Dentists uh, hardly ever default. Y'all are a really low credit risk from a banking standpoint. And that's because the borrower that personally guarantees the note is usually the primary economic engine. And he or she works in that practice four to five days a week. And, you know, it, they under no circumstances are they going to let that business fail. They're going to die trying, right? right, right Banks right. love that. There's no better vested interest than, than what I just described. Um, and you see that in the low, low default uh, risk. So when you're borrowing money to buy or build your first practice, or maybe your first or second practice, um, it's what we call rate and term. These are retail lenders that they're usually all 10-year terms, you know, maybe sometimes seven-year, but most of the time 10-year terms, and they're dirt cheap costs of funds. So there's, there's not a whole lot of difference in them. That being said, it doesn't cost the bank a lot to underwrite something like that because of the risk profile, which accounts for the low interest rate with it, right? Um, banks aren't stupid. They know that once you start adding multiple practices, you can't be everywhere at once and the business is no longer predominantly dependent upon you. Okay. Now you've got to run a business where you are bringing in other people to do clinical work and be the the economic engine to give the business a lift. It's a much more complicated scenario and the default risk is a lot higher. Ah, so when okay. you go to a bank and say, I wanna borrow a million dollars to buy my first practice, they love that. If you tell them up front, I wanna borrow a million dollars to buy my first practice and I'd like to borrow a million dollars every year for the next five years to buy five practices, that's a completely different risk profile to the bank. They underwrite it differently. They approach it differently. It's a different credit box for them, okay? So the problem first and foremost is that the dentists that wanna do this either kind of decide to build a group like sliding backwards in it, or they don't tell the bank up front what their intentions are over the next uh, foreseeable future, right? They don't lay out the business plan on multiple locations uh -huh. because that's a different conversation with a bank. So I don't want I don't want to ever like paint a bank in a bad light because it's a miscommunication, a fundamental miscommunication issue, arguably on day one. Okay. The next thing is everybody looks at um, the, the rate and the term. It's 3.5% for 10 years. You know, they don't look at the prepayment penalty structure. Um, if there is a prepayment penalty, and there always is, when does it occur? And is it based on the remaining balance of the loan or the original amount? 
those are two significantly different calculations. So the breakup fees can be really high if, if you take on a loan with bank number one and leave them a year later. Mm-hmm. You may not even be able to do that. The third thing is um, most banks uh, will not allow you to get subordinated debt without their approval. That's oh. part of the covenants and nobody knows that. So technically a lot of people that build groups with multiple lenders in multiple locations are probably in violation of some covenant structure with their original bank. Mm-hmm. The subordinated debt carries more risk because it's further down the line in terms of receivership. Yeah. So those additional locations usually still could be a 10-year term, but they're going to carry a higher rate or a, or a more uh, punitive prepayment penalty. So what we see a lot of people doing, they come to us and they say, I've got six locations funded by three different banks and, and I can't get any more capital to grow. Um, And it's the exact scenario that you just described and sort of what I'm going through here. So the ideal scenario is to recapitalize the debt structure of the business Mm -hmm. with um, a lower, usually what's known as a lower middle market lender. These are still traditional banks. Think of them more like as capital markets groups than you would as, as retail lenders. These are, this is business to business banking. This is not um, the local bank. Uh, relationship manager that takes you out to play golf once a quarter and buys you a steak dinner the other quarter and and that. These are more business-to-business bankers. They want to know the inherent performance of the business. They want to know the business plan. They want to know how much you want to draw upon in the coming years because they factor all of that into the way they underwrite the opportunity uh, and, and the costs of compliance as well. So in an ideal world, you want to work with one lender that can recapitalize the existing debt and give you um, a growth facility that says, hey, Mark, we love, the, we love the business you've built. We believe in the vision that you have, and we'll give you an additional million to $2 million in a credit facility that will re-up every six to 12 months, reevaluate it. So it, it, if you continue to operate the business well, it'll continue to to grow and you can grow to as much as probably 20 to $25 million of total loan exposure with them. Mm, In theory, it should be your last uh, debt lender before a a private equity type of a partner. Are there a number of these kind of mid-market business to business banks that exist and and, um, are you able to make introductions? Yeah, so we actually, this is a service we actually provide at, at Polaris and um, we negotiate, we, we'll build the book on, on the client, you know, on, on the Mark Costas dental empire. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll look through all the financials. We'll give you our best um, uh, evaluation of what a placement offering would look like from a bank. And if it meets with what your growth strategy is and understanding where you want the business to be in the next two to five years, we'll take it to those lower middle market lenders and negotiate all the term sheets, um, all the covenant structure, costs of compliance, everything like that, and bring back to the client what we feel is the best solution. There are there as many, uh, are there a good number of lenders? There are, they're not as prolific as the retail lenders that populate our world that we know, but they're they're further up the food chain in some of those banks um, that we already know. Um, and they, they just operate slightly differently from a, a client service standpoint. Gotcha, gotcha. It really, for somebody building a group practice, though, it's 
if you don't have this piece solved and committed from a lending standpoint, it's not a matter of if it's going to bite you. It's a matter of when. I mean, it really is. I mean, we're we're involved with I think six different transactions right now that range between the lowest one's about five million uh, in total volume commitment. And I think the largest one is somewhere between sixty and seventy million. So there's there's a lot of available capital in the space. Um, it's a matter of of fine-tuning the business plan and finding the right lender that wants to uh, fund your vision, if you will. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's great stuff. I appreciate that. Um, so talk to me about what, say you have, you know, let's say a three to five uh, practice regional group and you guys are doing, you know, I don't know, $10 million in gross revenue. Maybe it's, maybe it's an all-star and, and you're doing $2.5 million in EBITDA, right? And uh, let's just say for, for simplicity's sake that it's a single owner. It doesn't happen very often, but just, just let's just say it's a single owner. Um, you have a number of different people that are interested in the business because it's a very efficient business. It's, it's, in, a, it's in a tight regional area uh, of growth. So you're getting courted by a number of different um, potential buyers. You, you, you're ready to liquidate and, and hang up the handpiece and, and, the, and uh, uh, just uh, cash, out, cash out your equity. So what are those offers going to look like? Like give me three different scenarios of all cash or a certain amount held back and a certain amount that's mandatory for reinvestment into NUCO and, and those sorts of things. What does that look like? What do we have to choose from if it's a pristine group that's selling? Yep. So really, really good question. And the way I would answer this is uh, for your audience, um, it's really important for them to think about this about a year before they decide to go to market. Okay. Right, this is not a thought process that you start the go-to-market process and then figure it out. All right. What I'm going to tell you is is some pre-thinking, if you will. So um, there there are a couple of ways to decide. There there are a lot of variables to this, obviously. So the first thing is transactions are made up of essentially two things, cash flow and risk, all right? So you mentioned it's an all-star business, two and a half million in EBITDA with 25% margin on 10 million in, in revenue. That's, that's a lot of cash flow. Mm -hmm. The buyer, a buyer uh, is gonna find that to be very attractive. That's a high margin general dentistry practice. So it's probably very efficient, very well run. Um, and now they, they want to make an offer. Um, so the, the risk piece is how much risk is there in the business and who owns most of it. And that is reflected in transaction values and more importantly in transaction structures. So when I said you want to think about this a year before you go um, to market, if you were the business owner, Mark, what do you want life after liquidity to look like? If your idea is that you want an all cash offer and you are going to um, take the proceeds and buy an island in the Caribbean, you're, you're out of the business, you're done, I'm going to own it now, you're gone. I am putting all cash into your offer and I am taking on all the risk because you're not going to be there after the, the ink clears. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's reasonable to conclude that in a walkaway scenario that is all cash, 
there's going to be a lower transaction value because all of the risk is shifted onto the buyer. Okay, got it. Now, the second piece is, or the second maybe perspective is, let's say that um, you were, the business is no longer dependent upon you. you you're the, uh, the visionary for it, but you have a CEO, a COO, a CFO running the administrative side of it. And you're not, you may fill in a couple of days clinically, but none of the clinical work is really dependent upon you. Okay. You're the business owner. You're the visionary of it. Um, it may be that you want um, the transaction value to be 60% in cash and you want to roll 40% in equity into the new venture with me, but you're not going to play a role in it. And the business isn't dependent upon you. And I have your role replicated in other people. So now the risk is kind of hedged. And because you, you're taking an equity position in, in the new co, I'm, I'm out of pocket with less cash. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there's lower risk overall. Right. The third piece would be some amount of, um, uh, uh, cash to you and, you know, some amount of equity into the new business, but you're staying on for two to three years in a regional leadership capacity or a clinical capacity or something like that. Um, in, in which case I, I get a partner in the business. Uh, I get a figurehead in the business. I, I have somebody to help me stabilize the associates and the employees and and I can, I get you to help me maintain that continuity of cash flow and patience. So that would probably be recognized in a higher overall transaction structure and value, um, because again, my risks are hedged with it. The last piece I'll say is stuff like um, risks inherent in the business. Um, we talked about government payer earlier. Um, that's certainly one that uh, makes some buyers squeamish. So if there's, if there's some amount of Medicaid exposure, they won't even touch it. Or on the other hand, if there is a lot, do you have the systems and processes to, to mitigate the risks uh, around government payer? Is the uh, profitability of this general dentistry group that is so wildly marginally profitable, is the profitability a result of um, what we would call exotic procedures? very complicated uh, uh, surgical or general dentistry procedures that are technique sensitive, that are provider specific, that, you know, if you and only a couple of other people in the business are doing those procedures and you get struck by lightning, what, what happens to me? Like who can replicate them? Because I don't have the recruiting and the training systems to, you know, for, to replicate your set of skills. So there's some, so, some risks that are inherent in the business that you have to solve for as well. And that's why I say you want to think about this about a year before you go to market. And if you work with an advisor like us and you want to sit down and like tear the business apart, we're going to see where all the cash flows come from. We can do the valuation analysis, but we can also talk about, you know, uh, uh, concentration risk inherent in a, a few providers or procedural risk or payer risk and all these other different aspects that, that are inherent in the business that will influence the transaction structure for sure. Does, does that give you enough color and yeah, insight? Yeah, that's a great, great answer. Um, very, very well um, explained. So I think that's a natural segue then to discuss some of the factors that are involved in the multiple um, to uh, EBITDA to create these valuations, right? So 
based on the factors that you've kind of nicely laid out and outlined, um, there are, uh, you know, valuation differences depending on a number of different scenarios. Um, but what are we looking at? Like when it comes to actual numbers in today's climate, depending on those factors. Yeah, I mean, are, are you thinking like multiple ranges or loose kind of bands yeah. or something when, like when you're that? Looking at a, when you're looking at a 1x to, you know, the all-time high 18x, where are we yeah. looking right now based on, you know, like the ideal, uh, the doctor's willing to stay, super um, uh, super general practice, not super exotic, uh, um, uh, very, very efficiently well-run, high EBITDA uh, in comparison to the gross revenue, et cetera. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you, um, uh, I'll give you just a, a couple of like maybe mile markers, and and let's not take this as the gospel because uh, it depends on a lot of it depends on deal structure, it depends on uh, the number of uh, buyers who are interested in the asset, it it depends on a lot of things. But here's some really broad generalizations. Um, the established norm, if you will, for a typical solo practice is going to be somewhere between three to five times EBITDA. And, and the reason I, just, I start with that is that's one of the biggest fundamentals that gets people who are building groups in trouble. They buy a business from a broker as a, as a percentage of collections and and they don't know how to equate that or calculate that as a multiple of EBITDA. So they may say, hey, Perrin, I stole this solo practice. I paid 60% of collections. It, it was a song. I couldn't believe I got it. And I'll, I'll say, well, what's that as a multiple of EBITDA? And it's like, you know, the lights aren't on, right? Yep. So if you run the calcul, if you run the um, analysis and you figure out you just paid 10 times EBITDA for an ADA average solo practice, you've got some work ahead of you, right? So first thing for your audience is solo practices are probably somewhere between three to five times EBITDA, and you need to understand how to calculate EBITDA um, relative to uh, percentage of collections or other methodologies as represented by brokers. The second thing, and as you kind of start to stair step up on this, you break about a million dollars and, and you're probably solidly in the six times EBITDA range. Two is, you know, two to three is somewhere seven to eight on that range. Four to five million in EBITDA is nine to 10. Uh, and, and again, that's, those are like wide ranges. There's a lot that influences that. But the concept to be under, uh, mindful of if you're an entrepreneur building a group is something called arbitrage. And arbitrage is that if I have um, a group that um, is, uh, uh, you know, it's 5 million in EBITDA and it would trade on the market for 10 times and I buy your solo practice for five times EBITDA, as soon as I close that transaction, I get five turns on the upside as it, as it relates to equity on balance sheet. Okay, so um, for for people who are building groups, understanding how to buy solo practices and what arbitrage is, is is critically important. You know, from a from a sell side perspective, and the range that you mentioned, um, you know, high water marks. I mean, I'd still say your your enterprise level groups these days are probably in the fourteen to fifteen range, and that's like at the way top end of the food chain. That's my speculation. I, I don't see any of that, but some of the whisper numbers that I hear on 
some that have been through recaps in the last probably 12 to 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think our target client um, is is probably anywhere from like a million to seven million in EBITDA. That's a rough range, and and they're they're probably in the six to six to 10 to 11 range, probably depending on structure and transaction on the high end 11 for the $7 million. Yeah. I mean, but that, again, a lot of this is, is, um, you know, the way the transaction is structured and candidly Mm -hmm. the amount uh, of equity. So if it's a, if it's a transaction that has, if it's all cash, if we go back to my prior answer, that's going to be a lower multiple. And then one that's, more heavily weighted, say 40% um, in equity um, might carry a, a turn or a turn and a half more um, because the buyer has to come out of pocket with less cash to get the deal done or take on less debt leverage to do it. Um, and they understand the arbitrage concept that I just pointed out as well. So um, they're kind of playing with house money in a way at that stage. Yeah, 100%. That was a great answer as well. So um, a couple just random thoughts that pop into my head. Um, there, this, this was a bit more of kind of a buzzworthy topic before all of the current events have taken place. But you know, the, the Biden tax plan, this particular, um, this particular uh, um, politician, this, 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 this particular president and his cabinet are interested in changing the tax code, right? So a big part of that is restructuring uh, capital gains. So if capital gains go, uh, say, from 20, long-term capital gains go from 20 to, say, your regular income rate of 38% or double to 40%, do you think that's going to significantly change this market and change the the type of churn that we're having in these these regional groups if it actually does go through i think they'll probably be you know instead of maybe uh capital gains going from 20 to 40 percent maybe it'll go from 20 to 32 or 35 percent but what do you think is going to happen with all of this yeah again again, no crystal ball but yeah i mean i think um uh i'm going to try to be diplomatic and answer this as well um because um, we, we saw a lot of this activity um, last year, and I think there were a lot of people fanning the flames of, of this um, who were arguably being more self-serving than client-serving. Uh, I'm just going to leave that sort of where it is. The- so in, in other words, just I, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but what I am interpreting that is, hey, if we, if we kind of um, create this fear-based approach and say, Hey man, you guys might want to consider selling right now because, uh, you know, um, the, the tax rates are going to double. Um, yeah. So, so let's rewind the tape a little bit and, and be specific. Okay. Um, and, the the cap gain, the long-term cap gains rate indexed to, uh, income tax, uh, levels was the proposal and what nobody talked about uh, was that the proposal, um, if it had flown through the way it was submitted, um, was going to be pegged to, I think, April 1st of last year. Mm-hmm. Meaning everybody that went to market that closed a transaction after April 1st, thinking that they were going to get in under the wire, were going to get their clock cleaned and they sold their 
you know, their baby, so to speak. Right. Um, right. And so it was, I think it was you, retroactive you, back to April 1st you, of 2021. Yes. So, so anything that's anything that's happening moving forward, you, you, I mean, it doesn't matter when you do it between now exactly. and when they, when the bill is passed. Yeah. So, so you had a lot of people fanning those flames and look, I get it. I mean, I don't want to, you know, lose an additional 20 cents in the dollar any more than anybody else does. But I think there are a lot of people that rushed into the market that sold high performing assets that uh, might've sold them for the wrong reason. Uh, and you had a buy side that had been sitting on the sidelines for all of 2020, for most of it, at least due to COVID. Uh, and those guys that run the, those people who run the business development offices at enterprise level DSOs get paid to do transactions. So when a bunch of rabid salespeople haven't eaten in nine months they're, and they miss their number, they're highly motivated to get deals done. Plus you had the log, low cost of debt funds still, and all these enterprise level groups borrow money and use leverage to get transactions done. So you had a motivated buy side, a fearful sell side and low cost of funds, which is your perfect storm. And that's what you got last year. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about where it is now. And I, I try not, to, this is gonna come across bad Mark, but I try not to pay too much attention to what goes on in Washington because there's a part of me that really doesn't care. Um, and I, our opinion has been, don't let the tax, don't let the tax tail wag the dog, essentially build a business, operate the business, it's going to value highly if you run a, a, a good business, and there's going to always be a buyer for that business, and chances are you're going to get to, you, you'll command a premium for building a good business. The market will, will recognize that. I, I think the um, long-term cap gains rates are probably going to end up being somewhere in the high 20s. I don't think they'll, my personal opinion, I don't think they'll be above 30. And, and that delta is not a whole lot to move the needle. You also have the fact that if you have things like some level of depreciation recapture, again, see your CPA about this, but if you have something like depreciation recapture, it could, could clean out a lot of the proceeds as well, depending on what type of accelerated depreciation you've taken in, in the more recent years to operate the business. So there's there are a lot of things you need to think through that people just ran roughshod over in an interest of, of you know, spiking the football. And mm -hmm. I mean, look, we represented a couple of sellers last year that did very well. And we, and we tried to to do right by them and, and educate them to the best of our ability on a lot of this. And two of them elected not to take offers and, and a couple of others, a handful of others decided to take offers. So, you know, kudos to those for being a little bit more level-headed and deciding if the transaction wasn't right versus just saying, Hey, I, I'm scared. I got to get it done. Um, I think going forward, one of the other aspects of the tax package is, is the carried interest um, deduction that, uh, private equity groups are uh, beneficiaries of and from an expense standpoint, they get to deduct that. If that's no longer the case, it raises their, their cost of doing business and it limits most of the borrowing they do is on an interest only provision. So there's a lot of interest that gets deducted. Um, the full principles paid off upon the recap with a private equity backed group. Mm -hmm. um, but if you wipe out that um, carried interest deduction, that changes a little bit of the game for the um, enterprise level buyers. And if we see a dramatic increase in uh, the cost of borrowing, 
that could have an impact on multiples as well. So, you know, you're essentially you're asking between Washington, between the Fed and between market dynamics, where do we end up in another two to three years? Um, you know, I still go back to what we opened up saying. If, it, the next five to 10 years is gonna be a really, this is a really great space to be in. Um, and if a lot of people have exited, then you know what takes over? It's a simple law of supply and demand. If you've got a great business that you've built and it cash flows really well, and they're not many of them, you're gonna have a lot of buyers who are interested in buying it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's great. That was a great, great explanation. Okay, I, I promise I wanna be uh, respectful of your time. I know we're coming up on time here, but I would love to ask you just one more question. It's kind yeah, of a, sure. a, a broad stroke question, but um, you mentioned asso associate equity models and um, you know, in my circles, a lot of people, when they're thinking about expanding uh, capacity of their operation, you know, that's adding, that's adding associates to their current practice that's going to multiples and then putting multiple uh, associates in multiple practices. And of course, there's always the concern that, you know, your best producing dentists after you train them up and after you got them just right, of course, they're going to go and, and open their own thing. So yep. there's always this uh, desire to either offer up equity or offer up profit, profit or get them sticky to your organization one way or the other. And, you know, we've seen any number of different uh, strategies over the years to try to keep associates in-house without them uh, without them taking off and, and starting up their own venture. It could be down the street, it could be a state away. Uh, but the, 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 what we're trying to prevent is losing you know, the golden goose, basically. Yep. Um, so what are some options for equity buy-in, equity model, equity uh, for associates? Okay, so um, I'll try to be respectful of your time as well and, and keep this as brief as I can, but this is a really good question and, and we could rip an entire podcast on this one. So let me hit the high notes really fast, Mark. First and foremost, if you um, recruit an associate who is predisposed to be the king of their own kingdom or queen of their own kingdom, there's probably not a lot you're gonna be able to do to keep that person in, in your group. They wanna do their own thing. And that's okay. Some people are wired that way. They want to have their hands on the wheel and it's their way or the highway. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the next thing is we find that um, uh, the recruiting process of recruiting associates um, is uh, leaves a lot to be desired. And if you're building a group uh, or if you're a, a larger footprint solo practice and, and recruiting associates is something that you do often, you're competing against seasoned HR professionals that do this for a living. They can communicate their culture, their value uh, uh, position, their onboarding plan, their doctor development plan, their comp plan, their equity plan, and they present a whole solution to an associate, whereas you're presenting one sheet of paper that's a comp plan and a four-page employment contract. Mm -hmm. Now, which one do you want to join? What gives you more confidence, right? Exactly. So, yeah. It starts with recruiting. When you go through all of this, um, and if you're going, especially if you're going to build a group, I think you're at a decided disadvantage if you do not have a pathway to becoming a partner. It will create turnover, and associate turnover is the number one problem of every group practice. It doesn't matter if you're Heartland Dental or if you're John Doe Dental on the street corner. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? 
Um, the traditional method is that you see this in solo practices too. You know, you, you value the business. Um, you want to be my 50-50 partner. You go to Bank of America or Wells Fargo, take on a loan, proceeds paid to me. Now we're 50-50 partners. That's a capital interest of buy-in. And now, now we're officially partners. Um, that can have some applicability in groups, but I don't know that it's the right solution because it cross collateralizes the business from a debt structure standpoint, and it could limit your capital for growth down the road. So if you're in a growing business, multiple locations, having a, an associate that borrows money to buy in, the business will backstop their personal guarantee. Mm. Okay, so we, this goes back to banking, right? Having the right banking solution in place, critically important. Yeah. The next thing is, a lot of these young associates, I was reading something on the ADEA website the other day, the average, 82% of dental students graduated from school with student loan debt, um, they call it educational debt, and the average amount was $305,000 last year. Sounds about right. So, yeah. you know, I can't make a good case that they want to go out and buy another, or borrow another half a million dollars to buy in. So, an earn-in equity model, um, there are two different types. One's called profits interest and one's called restricted stock. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole just in the interest of time. But conceptually, both of them are uh, performance-based. These are real equity models, not what's called phantom equity. Phantom equity is kind of like a, a sort of a bonus plan, or it can have a lot of contingency to it but it doesn't have voting rights and distribution rights. Typically some okay. sort of profit share, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. If I want to be a partner of yours, I'm gonna want to have a seat at the table and I'm gonna wanna have a say, a vote, even if I own 1% of the business, all right? And you should wanna treat me, even though I'm 1%, as if I were the 99% shareholder, all right? My opinion is valuable. So on an earn-in basis, the methodology and the theory is that there's a, there's a goal. And for the associate to, to exceed the goal, he or she earns some percentage of every dollar above the goal in company stock, okay? And the company stock has something called a vesting schedule to it. So if I'm a high performer and I blow away the goal and I earn a lot of shares in the business this year, I can't spike the football and leave. Say, thanks, Mark, appreciate the opportunity, I'm out of here. The vesting schedule is, is what you hear called the golden handcuffs, mm -hmm. all right? So the stock that I earn might be $50,000, vests gradually over a five-year period. So I gotta stay to get it. That's the retention mechanism piece, you know? And the program rolls over and rolls forward every year. We raise the goal on them so they can't coast and it increases the performance of the business. Now well, they're, the they're, they're walking away from X number of shares of the practice up to a certain percent that's predetermined. Exactly, if they, if they leave early, if they Correct. leave. Correct. Yeah, yeah, so they, they forfeit anything that's unvested. Mm -hmm. For what is vested, if they leave early, you gotta pay them out over some period of time. And that's, that's in the operating agreement, the governing document. So there's a, there's a lot of teeth to these things uh, in terms of the mechanics of the way they work. Um, I'll say they're pretty complicated, but at the end of the day, what we're trying to achieve for a group practice owner who is uh, uh, courting associates is to be able to look the associate in the eye and say, listen, it's a great time to be a dentist. Y'all don't default. 
you can go borrow a million dollars from the bank and buy your own practice. And over 10 years, you can pay off that million dollars. You can sweat payroll. You can fight with the dental supply companies. You can struggle to market the business. You can uh, have the joys of, of ownership and get paid last. All those things you did, right, Mark? You know, the joys of getting paid last. And at the yeah. end of 10 years, after you've paid off the loan, that business is yours. But if we can create the same economic outcome, dollar outcome, at the end of a 10-year period, without you taking on the risk and doing it all by yourself, being part of our group, why would you go it alone? Why wouldn't you rather be part of a winning team if the outcome dollar-wise is the same? So we're trying to solve on behalf of the associate that economic outcome while we help create greater levels of business performance that makes the owner, the founder, you in this case, end up with uh, a more valuable um, majority of the business, even though you don't own 100% of it at the end of 10 years. So it's really a win-win type of a scenario, and it's a it's an earned uh, an earned equity model. This is something that DeWalker had at East West Bank, and I had at Patterson. So it's it's commonplace in corporate America. Just nobody done it in group dental practices yet, and it it took us a little while to figure it out. But yeah, that's genius. So do do they get the um... Do they get the ability to call themselves a partner after that initial document is signed? After the initial amount of equity is vested, they become okay. a partner, they sign the operating agreement. And we, we encourage our clients to make a little bit of a ceremony out of it. You know, take yeah, make a big deal about them, it. Yeah. yeah, man, give them a business card that says partner on it. I mean, yeah. that stuff matters, you know? And, it does. It does. And if you, if you build a culture forward organization, that's mutually supportive and you're trying to attract the right people that want to be part of that fabric, right? They want to belong. They, they want to, they want to be a producer. They want to be a high performer. They want to be a partner and they, they may not be able to, they may not want to take on a huge loan to, to do it all up front uh, and an earned equity model in a group context, a growing group context really solves a lot of those types of issues. So. I'm guessing um, we, some of the law firms and some of the accountancy firms that have 16 names as partners have some sort of an earn in as well. That's what I'm. Yeah, they do. And, and the funny thing is, um, uh, you know, when, when some, uh, I mean, occasionally that uh, phantom equity um, model is, is, is the right solution. Not, not usually, but occasionally it is. And a, a couple of times uh, when, when we were first building these models, um, they, they came back and some of the attorneys and uh, accountants came back and said, why don't you just do phantom equity? It's so much easier. And, and our response was, if I offered you phantom equity, would you be excited about it? <laughs> you know what yeah. the answer was to that, right? Yeah. yeah you, have, you have to assume that they're not, they're, they're not of the same, you know, ability to scrutinize the, the structure that you are. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, this is excellent stuff. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to see you. You're going to be speaking at our private, uh, our, our private member meeting um, uh, at the end of this month. Holy cow. That's coming yeah. right up in your hometown. That's so, right. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, a couple yeah. of weeks away. I'm, 
I think I'm on sometime early on Saturday morning. So I'm going to bore your group to tears and put them back to sleep. For who, <laughs> whoever didn't have double espressos that morning. Right. I'll make sure that I, I, I offer lots of caffeine and not a lot of, <laughs> not a lot of carbs on the plate for breakfast. So yeah, there you go. Yeah. We can't go. wait to see you, man. That was one of well, the best um, explanations of the whole DSO everything that we've had on the show. So thank you so much for, for being so patient and, uh, answering those questions so articulately. It was, it was, it was amazing. Thank you so much. Mark, I, I thank you for saying that. I mean, I value your opinion a lot and you have a lot of people on this show. So um, I hope I've been able to, to shed some light for your audience. And um, it is complicated stuff. Uh, that's for sure. But there are resources, there are answers, there are solutions out there. And again, I'll conclude with what we started with. And that's that, you know, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. It's a great time to be a dentist. And, and the next decade is going to be great for all of us. So really, uh, really appreciate you having me on in the partnership here. It's great. Yeah, we're great to really, really um, honored to have you. So uh, one last thing, what is the easiest way for people to engage with you guys or, or start the conversation with potentially being represented by you? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the opportunity. So um, you can go to, uh, you can find out a lot about us on our website, obviously, and the uh, uh, URL is uh, www polarishealthcarepartners.com polarishealthcarepartners.com we looked for the longest available url that wasn't taken and i think we found it so um polaris and i, I sometimes misspell polarishealthcarepartners.com and i'm the one that searched for the url originally so um that's probably the easiest place to start and then uh, if you want to send me an email directly, happy to correspond with anybody in your audience or, or even, uh, you know, they can book a call with me off the website. Um, and my uh, email address is uh, first name Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. We've got a podcast that you'll be on in a couple of weeks and um, a lot of videos on our YouTube channel, um, a lot of information on our website, and we're adding uh, further content. Um, to all of that on a, on a weekly basis. So hopefully they'll check back often. All right. Sounds great, Perrin. Thanks again. We look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks and uh, take care. Have a great weekend. You too, Mark. Thanks so much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Paris, sorry, Paris, Perrin Desports. <laughs>